listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And before we get started with today's episode, I would like to share with you that I have a YouTube channel called Layer of the Alchemist, where I discuss various heavy metal and hard rock topics. On the channel, there is a weekly episode series titled Sabbath Sunday, where Darren and I get together to talk about various Black Sabbath-related topics, sometimes inviting guests to join us in our discussions. For instance, we just had an episode where we listed our 20 favorite IOMI riffs. If you're interested, please head over to YouTube and search for Layer of the Alchemist and subscribe to the channel. Now back to our regularly scheduled podcast. For today's episode, we will be discussing Black Sabbath's 1983 11th studio album, Born Again. With the dissolving of the Mob Rules era lineup, Iommi and Butler were in search of a new vocalist. After considering various singers, their then new manager, Don Arden, father of Sharon Osbourne, suggested Ian Gillen of Deep Purple fame. Tony and Geezer would invite Ian to a local pub to discuss the possibility of working together. And after a night of heavy drinking, Gillen would wake to find out from his manager that he had agreed to join the band. A newly sober Bill Ward would also find himself back in the band as they headed to Manor Studios in England to see what might come of this unlikely collaboration. The end results were interesting to say the least, with heavy driving tunes like Trashed telling the story of Ian taking Bill's new car for a drunken joyride, or tales of angering some nearby priests with their monstrous riffs as told in the song Disturbing the Priest. But it wasn't all stories of mayhem and noise violations. Ian would find time to pen a love letter of sorts to his wife in the album's closing track, Keep It Warm. The album would be produced by Black Sabbath and Robin Black. And well, the results are uh, interesting, if not controversial. Detractors would slam the mix for being overly muffled and muddy with the guitar buried too far in the background. Those on the charitable side of the argument would say the album's bizarre mix added a unique, quote, atmosphere to the album. Oh, and let's not forget the cover art featuring a bright red devil baby with yellow fangs. Well, we'll let you decide if that was a good idea or not. In the end, the album would receive mixed to negative reviews and Ian Gillen would find himself quickly leaving at the end of the subsequent tour to return to more familiar territory in Deep Purple. Bill Ward would find himself unable to tour and would have his drum stool filled by ELO drummer Bev Bevan for the Born Again tour dates. All of this adds up to an interesting chapter in the history of Black Sabbath and one that has has led to many spirited late night discussions amongst hardcore Sabbath fans. All right, Darren, we're reaching a very interesting uh, point here in the history of Black Sabbath. So what are your memories of Born Again? My memory was reading an issue of Hip Crater magazine and they had a picture of Ian Gillen. And uh, it said, Gillen joins Sabbath. Something to that effect. 
and I was surprised. I, I, I liked, I was a pretty big fan of Deep Purple in and around 1983. I got into Deep Purple just a few years prior to that. And I, I felt pretty hard for Deep Purple, almost as much as I, I did for Sabbath. That was like Purple and Sabbath were my, my bands. And, and then Ozzy, Ozzy, Purple, Sabbath, you know, so um, I wasn't really sure what to think about it. I was, I was kind of alarmed that the deal was out because I had just warmed up to that situation. And I liked Mob Rules a lot by this time. So I was, I was disappointed, but yet I, I was, I was excited. I, I was interested to, uh, to hear what this, uh, what this band was going to sound like. And it was a few months later that I was at the record store and I saw the record on the wall born again, black Sabbath. And, uh, you know, as you said in your intro with the baby devil, with the, uh, the yellow fangs and everything, but I thought it was cool. I, it was, it was pretty, it made a pretty aggressive statement, but, um, I was cool with that. I liked the colors, the purple or maybe deep Royal blue and red and yellow. I mean, it really stood out. It, it, it looked cool. And, you know, the font, Black Sabbath, I mean, there's a lot of eye candy there. And uh, flipped it over, the pictures in the back. I mean, the, you know, the, um, a lot of the, the graphic artwork was, was similar to uh, Speak of the Devil and um, Diary of a Madman. So there was, there, there was a lot to, to excite. There was a lot of excitement in the design work of the album itself. And, and Steve Jewell, who was uh, I guess he was the graphic design guy at Kerrang! Magazine was the guy that did the graphic design work for Born Again and Speak of the Devil and uh, Diary of a Madman. So there was a co correlation there and I was cool with that. I mean, it all, it all was part of the same wheelhouse to me. Uh, so I remember get, I bought the album right away. I remember taking it home, putting it on. And as soon as I heard Trashed, I just, I was confused. I was disappointed. I, I, I was definitely, definitely wasn't what I expected to hear. Um, a lot of that had to do with the production. Although at that point in my life, my inexperience, I really couldn't discern what was going on. I just knew that it was distinctly different from where Sabbath left off with my rules and where they are on this album. And so I thought that for all the hype that was built up with Ian Gillen joining Black Sabbath and, and all the excitement that I had, it was really pretty quickly diminished as soon as I, I listened to, to the album. Um, if memory serves, I, I didn't hate it. I was disappointed, but I didn't hate it. And the, the songs that I, I took to right away, I really liked Digital Bitch, which actually at this point is probably one of my least favorite songs. But at the time that I bought the album, I really liked Digital Bitch. And I think it's probably because it was one of the songs that you could hear Iomi's guitar a little louder than some of the other songs. Trash had a really strange sound. It almost sounded like there was keyboard over the guitar. Um, but Digital Bitch was more straightforward. That was one of the standout songs for me. And Keep It Warm is another one, and, and still probably my favorite song on Born Again. Um, but no, I, I didn't hate the album. I was disappointed. I expected something different. It took a little while for me to wrap my head around it, but I wanted to like it. I liked the look of the album. Um, 
and 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 I I kind of I mean there's there's a lot here to kind of sink your teeth into, but it's like the main thing that that the biggest obstacle and still is for me is the way that this album is mixed. It's really challenging to uh, for me to to completely embrace it, and I think after all these years, I still have yet to completely embrace it. Um, and I I've always hoped that there would be a remix, and I guess maybe there might be on one on the horizon, maybe. I know that there was a press release that Iomi found. He said he found the master tapes, and I think there's some reference to maybe remixing it at some point. But I mean, at, at this point in history, would it even be a good idea? I mean, I I think you'd almost have to present both versions. You'd have to to give like a double record set or something like that, or or put it in a box set because this the way this album sounds. The, the muddy mix has become part of the album and people are used to hearing it that way. And some people actually, things that I've read prefer it. And I, and I think they, they might even be disappointed if they had a, a clear, more um, proper mix. But I, for one would, I, I would love to hear the drums. I, I can barely hear the drums in this mix. I would love to hear the guitar. Uh, almost everything is just really just kind of a muddy mix of of instruments and there really isn't any clarity or separation at all um and in a way i guess that kind of gives it uh its own personality its own character that i think is one of the things that people have grown to 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 be really fond of uh, it does have a murky dark brooding sound about it accidentally i i think because of the of the, of the poor mix but um it, it, it has become a characteristic and one of the things I think that people have really grown to like. Um, but to get clinical and specific about the sound of the album, you can't ignore the fact that there really is very little clarity on any of the instruments at all. The drums, I mean, I, I was just listening to it before we started our, our podcast here. And I, I mean, I really hard pressed to hear the snare. You can, you can feel the snare, but you can't actually, the snare really isn't audible to me. Um, Likewise, the bass, you, you know the bass is there, but there's not a lot of clarity to it. You can't really hear what he's doing. Uh, certain songs, it kind of, it peaks a little bit. You can hear some of Geezer, what Geezer's doing on like Zero the Hero. Um, the guitar, there's, there's a lot of really cool riffs, especially on Disturbing the Priest. I, I like what Iomi's I, I like doing on that song, but it, it's, it's barely audible. It would be so much better to be able to hear that more clear and um and i think that would probably make a really big impact for me but it's sort of a catch-22 because at this point so many years removed from the release of the album i don't know i mean it's like uh you either like it where it is or you don't um i think for the sake of curiosity it would be it would, it would be interesting to hear a remix and and i i hope i hope to one day to hear that because I'd, I'd like to just hear in, in greater clarity what Bill's doing because he he's he said that well when Bill rejoined Sabbath he was he was sober and he was sober while he recorded the album and he said that uh he was proud of his performance but man I, I can't even hear what he's doing I mean I, I know there's drums there but I, I can't I can't really hear the drums enough to be able to really discern 
if, if, if they're good or not. I mean, he's, you know, they're there and he's keeping up with the music, but I mean, I don't, I don't hear any cool fills and I don't hear anything that, that kind of pops out at me. Um, so I'll have to take his word for it, but um, yeah. Um, basically my thoughts. I mean, I, I think I've mellowed out with Born Again over the past few years or so. There was a time when I just re was really kind of angry at the album. <laughs> because there was it had so much potential to be yeah. a really interesting thing um you really couldn't call it an era of the band because it was only one album and um but such as it is i mean it 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 could have been a really valuable part of black sabbath history and i guess it, it still is but maybe for for sort of the wrong reasons um i, I wish it were more properly mixed and I, I wish it had more integrity sonically than it does and that that's my really that's really my only gripe um you, you know you can't expect it to sound like the ozzy era you can't expect it to sound like the dio era i mean ian came in he wrote his own lyrics he wrote his own melodies um the album itself was it wasn't rehearsed ad nauseum they wanted to keep it raw they wanted to not make as big a production with the album as they had on previous records and so it has a raw sound and that would have been really really good if the mix wasn't so murky add the rawness to the murkiness and it just sounds really indiscernible sound wise and uh, and that, that's really my at this point in time, that's really my only problem. Um, we're going to go song to song like we always do. And so we'll get into detail about that. But um, I mean, it is what it is. Some people love the album to death. It's almost like it, it, there, there's like a cult of born again with people. And I, I think that's cool. I, I think it's cool when anybody can attach themselves to something and, you know, and, and make that kind of an emotional and personal commitment to uh to a band or an album, I always has my respect. So I, I would never criticize anybody for for liking whatever they like and, and feeling and you know, having strong feelings toward it. I think that's really cool. Uh, that's not me though with this album. There are other albums, but this is a this isn't that album. But at, such as it is, um, yeah, it's cool. How about you, what are your thoughts? Well, when this came out, uh, I had all the other Sabbath albums by this point. I was way into it. So I was excited for this to come out. I think I had actually, this was probably the first Sabbath album that I was anticipating its release. Before this, I was too young to, to and didn't have any access to any magazines to tell me that Mob Rules was coming out or that Live Evil was coming out. <clears throat> they just sort of happened. I walked into the record store, there they were, <laughs> and I yeah. got them. But this, now I was, I was uh, old enough that I was reading articles in Hit Parade or Circus or whatever, and, and I knew that this was happening. So, so I was pretty excited about it. And I was so into Black Sabbath, I think, that I was just happy to have a, a new Black Sabbath record. I, I was a little disillusioned that, that, Dio had left the band. I was again young, and in my mind, they, when we talked about this during the Dio albums, that I kind of felt like I wasn't there for the Ozzy uh, era, but 
but I'm here for the DOR and this is going to last forever. You know, the optimist op optimism of a youth <clears throat> didn't realize that that's not the way things tend to work in rock and roll. So when Ian came into the band, I remember feeling a little like, is this really going to, is this going to last? I didn't have a lot of experience with Ian Galen. I think I had made in Japan and maybe machine head. So I didn't come into it with any kind of like, you know, I was a big Deep Purple fan and I couldn't, you know, imagine Ian inside Black Sabbath. I knew who he was. I had made in Japan. I think I had Machine Head, but I didn't have a super strong uh, opinion on Ian Gillen. So it was all good to me. Sabbath had a new album. Bill was back in the band. I was I was excited about it. And honestly, early on, I, I think I just looked past the mix. I was just so young I had it on cassette to just to add to the lo-fi. <laughs> I can only imagine, you know, what this album sounds like on cassette to a cheap, you know, cheap, the cheap Walkman that I, that I had. Uh, and I think I was just young and just didn't, didn't think about it. Didn't, didn't know, I didn't notice, or maybe I did notice, but I just didn't care. I look past this. I think of another album at this time that, that in some ways reminds me of this, which is Fly on the Wall by ACDC. You know, when I got Fly on the Wall, I, I it was a new ACDC record and I liked it for, for what it was. You know, maybe it subliminally affected me. I knew with Born Again, it didn't feel quite, <clears throat> I liked it, but I didn't like it as much as Mob Rolls or Heaven and Hell and the, the Ozzy era stuff. It felt like, <clears throat> felt different. There was something different about it. And maybe that was, maybe I just was too young to be able to pinpoint that it was the mix. But uh, it's an album that did over the years, I've, I've always liked it uh, because I think that there's a, there are a number of really strong uh, songs on it. But like you said, as I got older and became, my ears matured, uh, definitely the mix on the record is distracting. And anybody who says to me that they can't get past the mix on this record, which I know some people that do feel that way, I can't really fault them because this isn't just a case of, oh, I wish that the uh, ride symbol was a little louder. Yeah. <laughs> I wish there was a little more clarity in the yeah. bass guitar. I mean, this is just, it affects every instrument. Yeah. There is no instrument that, is not affected by this. Iomi's guitars feel way far back. Uh, Geezer's bass is kind of there, but it's so muddy. There's way too much bass on the entire mix and mm -hmm. bass, the frequency, which affects everything. It gives it this sort of claustrophobic, muffled feel like you. It gives it a wash, it. a wash. Yeah. And you were talking about the drums for me. Oh my goodness. I was listening to it today, the album. And I mean, I've, I've, I've felt like this for a long time. This snare drum sound is just awful on this. It's like this reverb splattery reverb sound on the snare that is just, oh, it's just awful to me. If I were to pick one instrument that suffers the most, Everybody suffers in this mix, but I would I would say that the drums are just they really suffer, which is a shame because it does kind of sound like Bill Ward yeah. <laughs> has some moments on this record. I mean, when we talked about Heaven and Hell, 
I made the comment that it, it's sort of, it, it's hard to tell. In my yeah. opinion, I felt like it was hard to tell if this was even Bill Ward. Mm. You kind of disagreed with me and, and, and yeah. felt like there were definitely Bill Ward moments on Heaven and Hell. But I felt like on Born Again, there was more, I could hear like th- trashed where he's doing those big drum rolls and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, that to mm-hmm. me really felt like classic, you know, something you might've heard Bill play on Never Say Die. And so it was so disappointing that this was all lost, uh, kind of washed over in the mix. But there was still a lot of really cool stuff on the record, you know. I like, I know some people don't like these little instrument, these little instrumental soundscape interludes that Sabbath was doing at this time, uh, the dark and Stonehenge in this case. But for me as a young kid, I, I thought that just added to, to sort of the, atmosphere of the record and in some ways back then I was sort of in the camp of like the 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 sort of muddiness added like this dark lo-fi added to sort of the the atmosphere of the record so things like the dark and Stonehenge and Zero the Hero disturbing the priest even the song Born Again like that guitar intro has a really weird like effect on it or something yeah. and on top of the like muffled mix it just gives it this really like i don't know fuzzy vhs tape quality yeah. <laughs> weird quality to it so it's it's you know it's a record I, I i would love to hear a a remix of this album now for for everybody out there i, I mentioned my youtube channel at the beginning of this and i've talked about this on my youtube channel because this is something that gets confused in terminology with people where they think the difference between a remaster and a remix, uh, and I'm, we're not going to go super in depth into this right now, but a remaster is basically them just EQing the final product. A remix is actually going in to the original tapes where you can adjust levels, you can change the tone on the instruments and stuff like that. And f- as Darren, you mentioned that, for a while there, Iomi, they couldn't find the original ma- the original master tapes, the original mix tapes, but apparently they have found them. And according to Iomi, they are, he does want to do a, a proper remix of this. So I think that, that that could go two ways. That could either be like, wow, I didn't even realize there was all this cool stuff going on in here. This gives me a totally new perspective on this record. Even for people that like me who like the record, a remix may like send it into our top 10, you know, just make us love it even more. Or it could have the reverse effect where you've gotten so used to the mix the way it is and for better or for worse, hearing it in a different light. Uh, you know, it it may take away some of the rugged charm. <laughs> yeah, you know, record, and, you know, I think what it would really benefit from is somebody who, because we're so many, we're so many years into this, having an investment with, with this record that it would be difficult, even though we know it's flawed and we know what the flaws are. It, it's hard, it would be hard at this point to listen to this record any other way. I mean, you either like it or you don't, or actually there isn't in between. You you don't like it, but you listen to it because the songs are good. And that's that's where I am, I'm in between. I don't like the mix, uh, but the songs are good. And um, I'm willing to 
to struggle through it so I can listen to these songs. It's not an album I, I play very often, but um, when I do, when I do get the urge, I, I usually end up enjoying it uh, in spite of the fact that it's really, truly really difficult but I, to listen to with, with the mix. But I think that the thing is, you got to find the right person to do it. You got to find somebody where they have to find somebody that is respectful of the tradition that this record has in the way that it sounds. So there's, you have to kind of, I, I think the way to do this would be to not completely diminish some of this raw, murky, atmospheric vibe. Keep that in there somehow, but bring some sort of isolation or at least separation, not isolation, separation within the instruments. So there is, the, the frequencies are separated. So the low end guitar frequency isn't colliding with the bass. That's yeah. just a, a wash, you know. There, but, but I think there is a way to do it where you can retain some of its original charm, some of its original 1983 charm, but with somebody who's experienced and knows what they're doing and loves the album, I think there's probably a way that they can find a sweet spot with combining the best of both worlds where they retain some of that original charm, but they're able to extract some uh, more definition and more, clarity. More, more definition and clarity. And yeah. You can hear and, what's going on because you used the word struggle and that's a good way to describe this. When you listen to this, sometimes you, 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 you like the songs but you're just struggling to hear what just flat out what's happening yeah, at times on this record. You want to like, you can tell that Bill Ward's working really hard back there behind the drum kit and it just gets lost. I mean, we're going to get into the songs in a moment, but as I was listening today, one thing that jumped out at me was at the end of Zero the Hero, Bill changes his drum beat and starts doing this sort of like military yeah. march type thing. And I just never quite noticed that uh, the, the other 100,000 times I've listened to this record. And I thought to myself, like, and there's some like weird kind of like bubbly effects going yeah. on. Yeah. You know, it reminds me a little bit of like the way Sign of the Southern Cross fades into E5150. Uh, and I thought to myself, here's a good example of like, I could hear with some more clarity here, you could hear some of these little bubbling noises going on as the song fades out and that military snare thing could just pop a lot more and really give it a, a different sort of feel uh, to the ending. But you're right, if they do it in such a way to still keep some of the uh, some of the atmosphere to it, like giving it some sort of overly bright loudness wars, death magnetic treatment will just ruin the yeah. just swing the pendulum too far yeah, in the opposite yeah. direction could Absolutely. potentially ruin it. And as an, as a side note, for those out there who might be interested and not aware of this, there is a good uh, bootleg out there. It goes under a whole bunch of different names. Mine is called something like the manor, tapes in reference to you know the manor studios where this was recorded and supposedly these are early rough mixes that were on a cassette that i've story that i heard that it was a cassette that bill ward had listening to in his car so it it, it lets you hear the mix in a slightly different uh light although i'll be honest with you it doesn't it's so rough that it, 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 it's, it's lacking 
that atmosphere and it's it's just a very rough mix lacking any of the it's missing some parts to some of the songs i think and stuff like that okay. so it doesn't really do it's it's not any kind of revelation new revelation on hearing the record but it's it's interesting and if for people out there if you haven't heard it you could look up born again demos or born again rough mixes and it'll it'll come up on youtube and i'll let yeah, you, you can, hear this in a different light and the remastered version of this this album the remasters that came out in those deluxe sets that came out um you know probably 10 plus years ago at this point it does add a little bit of clarity a little bit but there's only so much that they could do with with a remaster and you know it, it kind of, it, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is there is a, a bonus track called The Fallen, which yeah. is pretty cool. Um, and I could see why it didn't make the album. It, it kind of sounds a little different from everything else. And actually the production on that feels like it has a little bit more clarity. Uh, but the way that the album is, uh, as far as the balance between side one and side two, I think that, you know, putting The Fallen on there would have, I think the only place you could really put, could have put it would be on side two and it would make it a little bit, it probably would have, for vinyl, it would have made it way too noisy, even more than it is now, because it, there, there would be too much, too much. Yeah, I think the time. album already clocks in it, like, you know, the, the typical roughly yeah 41 minutes the album yeah. that stands is 41 minutes so to add that song uh the fallen which is you know i don't know how long it is but it's know, like four it, minutes I yeah think. at least i'm sure so that that would have sort of made one side of the record 24 minutes long so in the age of uh, vinyl it just wouldn't work but for everybody out there that track is on the 2011 uh, deluxe edition as well as a uh, extended version of Stonehenge which clocks in at almost five minutes whereas the original Stonehenge was a minute and 58 seconds so you get about another three minutes of Stonehenge if that's something you're uh, interested in. <laughs> There's also rumored to be an additional five extra songs one of the first songs that I think that um, I remember in that Hit Parader article, and I, I, I have the magazine, and I'm not just going off of memory from 1983. I actually read it not that long ago. Um, Gillen mentions the song Death Warmed Up or Death, Death Warmed Over um, as one of the titles of the new uh, one of the titles of the songs on the new album in that in that interview. And of course, that song i don't know if it changed titles but i i don't think it did i think that that song was one of the early songs that they had worked on and then uh it, it just got put aside but supposedly there's there's actually more more songs that were recorded or somewhere out there uh, which is unusual for sabbath because usually whatever they have is just enough to complete an album there's usually not any uh bonus tracks but i'm on this particular album, I think there were some extra tracks left over. So, I mean, if they wanted to do the super deluxe treatment with this, um, you know, you could have a remastered version of the original mix, I think, which would be cool. You could have a remix on another album. 
Um, you can have some, you know, bonus tracks. You can put the Fallen and whatever else. If there are any extra tracks, in reality, they can they could be on there. Maybe some alternate mixes, things like that. And of course, you could always do a couple live albums. I mean, there's a lot of shows that were recorded during this tour. This was a big tour for Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, Quiet Riot opened, and this was really I. Most of the people, I I did not go. Um, I didn't want to go. Um, I'm not sure why. I know I wasn't really enthusiastic about the album. I don't remember the specifics as to why I didn't go. I know that I wasn't really that into Sabbath at the time. I was more into Ozzy. I, I had really started to get more into Sabbath with Dio, and I was pretty excited about that band. And then when this album came out, and it, I was disappointed by it. I, I, I just wasn't interested. But a lot of my friends went, and uh, and they and they seemed to like it. Um, so, I mean, but they did tour pretty extensively for this album and, uh, a lot of good shows. There's some, some badly recorded shows, but I think the, most of the bootlegs, there, there's, there's quite a few good ones and I enjoy listening to them. And it's cool, um, to hear some of the songs live that actually sound better than they do on the album. And then, yeah, there's, uh, for the 2011 uh, deluxe edition on disc disc two there was uh, live at the reading festival which yeah was broadcast yeah. on bbc radio and you get from uh the born again album you get hotline uh zero the hero and digital bitch as well as uh them doing smoke on the water <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of that's kind of interesting uh so yeah there's definitely enough you know, from this, from this era to, to come up with a nice box set. And I think, I think it would make an interesting press release, especially if Ian Gillen were to sort of get involved in doing some interviews on it and stuff like that. It, it might, again, like you mentioned, there is a real sort of cult following around this album. And it's an album that when it came out was kind of slammed by the critics and it's, you know, this, this is an inflection point, a kind of a turning point for Sabbath. If you want to say this is this is the beginning of a downward trend for the band, if you will, as far as sales and and stuff like that. And the, the re revolving door of musicians would begin to swing wildly really from uh, from this point out. So it's it is an album that I think uh, if if was brought up to modern standards a little bit and given a nice deluxe box treatment. If, if Ian were to do some press on it and everything, I, I think that it would, you know, shine, I think it would shine a light on this and uh, you know, us, us fans would, would certainly appreciate it, but it might show some renewed interest in this record because like you said, there is some good songs on the album. There's a lot of good songs on the album. And even though Ian Gillen, when you think about it, it, it seems like an awkward fit, but it does seem to work. I don't know if they could have made this work really. When I think about it, I'm not quite sure if they could have made this work for more than one record, but uh, no. for this record, at least, you know, it, 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 I, it does work and Gillen fits enough into the Black Sabbath uh, sound and mode mm -hmm. there with his high screeches and everything. And yeah. <clears throat> some of the lyrics were, were dark enough 
to to pass as Black Sabbath lyrics, born again, disturbing the priest, zero the hero, you know, things like that were, were enough there to sort of check off that, you know, black, this is Black Sabbath, which you would expect from a Black Sabbath as far as lyrics and, and things like that. I, I think it, it would, I don't think it would have lasted very long. I think that Gillen <clears throat> had some fun with the, uh, the Black Sabbath image. And I think he put himself into that and made it part of the, his persona when he was writing the lyrics and his performance on the album. And it all comes together and it all, it all blends, you know, it's very dark. He sounds demonic with his, his wails and, you know, and screams and everything. I mean, it's, it's, it really, it, it's very effective and, it, it's cool. I mean, it works, um, but it's not really Ian Gillen. Um, I think he put himself into that character for, for the album, but I don't think it would have lasted very long. It's, it's hard for Ian Gillen not to write songs about women and boozing <laughs> and, and sex. I mean, that, that's what he that's that's his thing. You know, that's what he's he's done. Um, and I think in, in some ways, I mean, he left the Gillen band. Um, and uh, he had a pretty good run with that. And it was kind of strange. He left Deep Purple. He did Ian Gillen solo band, which is like a fusion band. And then he went from that into more of a uh, rock and roll, heavy hard rock band. And, and that stuff was really cool. Um, and then he, he went, put it on hiatus because he said he was having throat problems. And then uh, he joined Sabbath. And I think that kind of ticked off the other guys in the band at least i know the bass player whether the bass player john mccoy who i think is a great bass player you're familiar with john mccoy yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love those gillen records yeah those are great but he got kind of yeah. miffed and he's like well wait a minute i thought you know you we were we were putting the band on hold because you had throat problems now you're joining sabbath did you just tell us that so you can join sabbath you know um so there was a little bit of um uh negativity regarding that but i guess it all worked out in the end um because that was the end of the Ian Gillen band. Um, from Sabbath, he went and he, he joined uh, Deep Purple. And yeah, Purple the Strangers. Strangers. What a tremendous album that was. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't meant to be, I, but I think it was cool. I mean, as a project, and I think that there was some discussion. At one point, Iomi had said that, you know, they had talked about maybe calling it something else. But yeah, I, I, I don't see that as being necessary. I, I, I think that, uh, that it works as a Black Sabbath album. Like I said, I, I think the only the only bad thing about it is that it, it, it just wasn't mixed properly. I mean, they had a, it, I'm not sure really how it got left the way that it, it ended up because um, so you had the engineer Robin Black and he was the same guy that worked with the band on Technical Ecstasy. That album was recorded very well, produced very well. Um, uh, Tony Iommi produced, he was producing albums, I think since, since what? Uh, was it uh, Sabotage? Was that the first album that he produced or was it Technical Ecstasy? Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, I mean, he, yeah. he, he did, you know, he's been pretty competent producer. He was producing other bands. Of course, he produced Quartz, self-titled Quartz album, which sounds really good. So I don't know what happened, but I know that before the album, before they had heard the final album, they were already on tour in Europe. And um, then, of course, Bill had, falling off the wagon so he was out of the band and they had Bev Bevan from ELO uh, in the band now and you know that was weird but then again maybe not I mean we thought Bev Bevan was a pretty uh, pretty heavy drummer 
you know, some songs, some ELO, ELO songs that I thought were kind of heavy. Fire on High off Face to Music. I, it was one of the songs as a kid that I always liked listening to because the drum sounded like really reverb. <laughs> you know that song I'm talking about? It's the instrumental. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was weird that, you know, technically Bev Bevan was formerly of ELO, but uh, it's a heavy hitter. And, and, I, and I think it kind of worked until you listen to some of those bootlegs and and man, he just didn't know the songs. I mean, he was missing cues. Um, That's kind of the story of this this band live during this era. Even you know? even Ian kind of sounds like with the old Ozzy stuff. Like it is just so not him that no. he's well, not. I mean, we we were sort of saying more so we, than we, Dio. At least at least with Dio, Dio sounded like he put time into learning <laughs> the songs. I always just got the impression that Ian just, you know, never really knuckled down <laughs> and learned some of those older songs. Cause it just sounds like, you know, and there's stories of him, you know, having to have lyric sheets on the stage and some yeah. story about one time when the smoke machine wouldn't shut off and he couldn't see the, the lyric sheets and there's all kinds of just stories from the band from this era. They did the whole, if any people out there, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the movie Spinal Tap, the whole uh, Stonehenge scene in Spinal Tap is inspired by Black Sabbath where they, Geezer had came up with the idea of Stonehenge, uh, uh, theme for this for the stage show but he got his uh centimeters and inches <laughs> mixed yeah. up and they landed up having these stone hinges that were so big they could barely fit yeah. them in to half the places that they play uh, we haven't even talked about the album cover you know we mentioned it in the introduction you talked about it a little bit I mean, me as a as a 13 year old kid, I thought it was cool, you know, the bright colors and everything. I also I, I like the fact that you mentioned the sort of the the, the back, if I remember correctly, has like uh, the pictures of the band. Yeah. And there's like a little uh, like a frame around the around the band members with some like uh, what would you call that? Like uh, the lettering the or something. Yeah, it, it's not really lettering. It's it's that same, and it's even the same color scheme as uh, a lot of the graphics on Speak of the Devil. Yeah, yeah exactly. And to me, I was okay with that. It, it reminded yeah. me of, you know, Ozzy. And uh, so I was okay with the cover, but I sort of get it, you know, for, for them. And as a weird sort of curious side note, again, this is just how Black Sabbath seems to operate. The Born Again cover, that that baby on the cover actually appeared on a Depeche Mode single like a year or two before that. And, and it's, it's, it's a baby, uh, obviously not painted red with yellow fangs, but it's a picture of that baby. And somehow, I guess the story goes that the record company had that picture on file. They used it for the Depeche Mode single, I believe it was. And then they decided to, they used it on the Born Again record, just colored the baby red and the fangs and didn't realize that it was the same. Nobody noticed that this picture had been used. So as a weird curios thing, if you go Google on the internet, Depeche Mode, 
born again, you'll see the you'll see this original uh, picture of the of the uh, what the baby looked like before they painted it red and everything. So, so it's just it's it's an album that uh, you know just in sort of typical Black Sabbath fat. Only some of these things could only happen uh, uh, to Black Sabbath, and and like you mentioned, the mix. The story goes from them that. They didn't have to, they had to head out onto the road. They were out on tour and they never, they never had a chance to okay the mixes, which seems really crazy and strange that a band of Black Sabbath stature, 11 albums into their career and they're not checking the final mix of a record before it gets pressed. I mean, that, that to me sounds completely bizarre, but who knows? Either way, that that's how it happened. So this is just a, a you know, a, a period, a history period in uh, Black Sabbath history that is just full of odd little, <laughs> odd little footnotes, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, I think the funniest thing is the um, the Stonehenge thing, where they they you're right. Uh, there's a couple a couple versions. One is that Don Arden told uh, Pacific Light and Sound that he wanted a mock-up of a Stonehenge um, stage set. And instead of feet, he wrote it in meters or it was misinterpreted from feet into meters. So the thing was like 45 feet tall and it wouldn't <laughs> fit into any of the places they were playing. Uh, another story is that it was Geezer that... Um, when somebody asked him, well, what are you thinking about for the stage set? And he's like, uh, Stonehenge. I thought, okay, well, how big do you want it? And he said, life size. <laughs> so <laughs> life size it was. But they actually did play with the huge Stonehenge a few places. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that they were able to fit in most of the places they played. Um, regarding the cover, I'm trying to find the Depeche Mode. I thought that it was on Born Again first, and then it came out as a single for Depeche Mode, but I, I can't find it. Um, I know that the original picture was from Life Magazine, and, uh, and Steve Jewell just um, went to town on it, made put the fangs in and everything. It, it's kind of goofy when you think about it. I mean, the, the end result, when you saw the album cover um, on the wall, or you, you saw it at a distance, it was like... <clears throat> Oh my God! Oh wow! Look at that! That's that's, that's demonic. That's evil. Um, and then when you start to realize how it came together, it, it's kind of comical in a way that he just you know took this picture of the baby and he added colors and made it red and put fangs in its mouth and little horns and long fingernails. Uh, but it, it kind of it, it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Rosemary's Baby, but it, yeah, it yeah, yeah that's sort of that vibe of the, of the end of Rosemary's Baby. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, so there was a, there was quite a few things that were were kind of clumsy in the outcome. You know, when it all was said and done, you know, of course we had the Stonehenge debacle. We had, you know, the fact that nobody heard the mix, nobody signed off on the mix, and they're on tour for an album, and they heard the album somewhere along the along the way on tour, and nobody liked it. Gillen didn't like it. Tony didn't like it. Geezer didn't like it. Bill was out of the loop at this point anyway. Um, but yeah, it was just, uh, it was strange. It all seemed to just, was like it was thrown together. Um, I think the only thing that was really successful 
were, were the were the songs themselves. I think the way that the songs came together, there was a bit of an immediacy um, to the songs. I think that worked to their advantage. Um, but the takeaway from the album is that, in spite of all these things that that are flawed, I think the songs themselves are are pretty solid. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a it's a good collection of songs. And so, um, you know, you got to look on the bright side when you're talking about this album. And again, I mean, you know, I mean, you get get into a conversation with somebody who who loves this album. And there's a lot of people, um, you know, you it could get pretty intense because people really like invested, you know, some personal feelings into this record. And yeah, I think a lot yeah. of it has to do with with people that are our age, a little younger. Um, this was their first might have been their first concert it might have been their first black yeah. sabbath album so you yeah know, they, if you're of the certain age you know yeah. like, like i was 13 years old at the time uh, you know it 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 had an impact just because yeah it was yeah. a black sabbath record to, you were 12 13 14 and you remember it for that yeah. so you know, so, so people have a, a real emotional attachment to it. And I, and I get that, like I talked about earlier, you know, it's, uh, I think that's cool, but, you know. All right, well, let's, uh, let's segue into the songs. Before we do that, though, just as a little trivia note for everybody out there, the Depeche Mode single was from uh, the, uh, I believe the song was called The New Life, and it came I out love in that 1981. Song. It came out in 1981, so it was before... The Sabbath cover. But all right, let's move into the album. So the album opens with the song Trashed. Uh, I always loved this song. It had a video at the time. That was another thing that we haven't talk, mentioned yet. This was the first, like, Black Sabbath had videos before this with, with Ronnie, and uh, but they were just live concert clips. This was an actual sort of made-for-MTV video. And as cheesy as it is to sort of see it now with some guy running through a cemetery being chased by I guess they're supposed to be zombies or something you know running into a church at the time again as a 13 year old kid having you know MTV was popular at the time being able to see this Black Sabbath video and the cemetery and the late night and the, the, the fog and everything it just it just seemed really cool. And I liked it as a kid. It reminded me a little bit of Ozzy's Bark at the Moon video, which had that sort of hammer horror uh, type of thing. But uh, but Trash, is it's a cool song. I've always liked it. Uh, it's, it's a cool driving riff. As I mentioned in the introduction, the lyrics are, are about uh, Ian taking Bill's new car for a uh, drunken joy ride and and flipping it over. So the lyrics are fun. Uh, I was listening to it today and I counted. Ian manages to say tequila three times in, <laughs> in the song. Uh, there's the line, I'll have to, I'll have to uh, search for it here where he says, he actually says it uh, two times in a row where he says something like we, I, I'm gonna look for it while, while you, I went back to the bar and hit the bottle again, but there was no tequila. Then we started on the whiskey just to steady our brains because there was no tequila. Yeah. <laughs> he manages to rhyme tequila with tequila. And the yeah. finds a Sabbath tradition of rhyming masses, masses with masses. masses well, uh, yeah. Ian, Ian rhymes uh, 
tequila with tequila. So fun song, love the riffing. I love the campy uh, video that went along with, whenever I see that video, it takes me right back to 1983, staying up watching MTV. Uh, fun song, cool opening. Uh, uh, yeah, the video you. is, go ahead, okay. The video well, I was actually, would say you, yeah. <laughs> Okay. The, uh, the, the video was actually banned on MTV, I think, because there was like some, some images that they disagreed with. So I didn't see it. I, Night Flight on USA used to have a show called Night Flight's Takeoff, and they would have, uh, they would show a lot of metal videos. And, and MTV at this point was, they, they were flagging some videos, and it wasn't for like the language in the song or for nudity or anything. Uh, it was just random things, images that they thought were, uh, suitable for public consumption and the trash video was one of them so i mean they you may have seen it on mtv it might have been night flight yeah yeah night flight was where i saw it um and i thought it was cool you're right it does it does it's very i think it was like a frankenstein in it and it is very horror movie um inspired um it's pretty cool uh wasn't enough to make me like the song anymore but i it was Black Sabbath, and when the video, when I saw the video, I got excited for it. Uh, yeah, Trash, I think it, I think it tries to start the album off in a neon nights or um, turn up the night kind of a way, <clears throat> but um, because of the production, it doesn't quite have the same effect as those other songs. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is, uh, it's not for lack of trying. It, it definitely has that kind of uh, energy to it um but like i said i mean if i could hear the guitar a little bit better i think i would have probably liked it a lot more trash was it was one of the reasons why i was initially disappointed by the album i wasn't wasn't feeling trash there seemed like there was a keyboard or something behind the guitar where that was louder than the guitar yeah yeah you could so certainly that, hear if this was remixed properly that main riff would have that chugging like Neon Nights and would have yeah. way more impact as it stands right now. It's yeah. it's so washed out that it's just it's just sort of lost. And the same thing we talked about the drums. This is, I was mentioning earlier, you know, Bill's big drum fills that whole like, oh, Mr. Miracle, that part where he's doing yeah. all those yeah. drum runs and everything. They're just, just so awash in reverb and noise effects yeah. or something that it has fairly audible just sort of messy you know it just sounds really messy sonically it's messy so yeah all right well next is uh stonehenge and this is one of the two keyboard sound effect interludes i know some people write these things off as just filler but uh, I've always liked these type of things. I think it adds atmosphere to the record. It, uh, you know, adds sort of a creepy, strange vibe to it. It, of course, reminded me of V5150. Uh, so it, for me, I, I, I think it's cool. I like this type of thing, but I can understand it's obviously not something, uh, some magnum opus or something that they no. <laughs> to put a whole heck of a lot of thought into, you know, it was probably uh, who we forgot to mention. Jeff Nichols uh, yeah. is in, in the band at this point, you know, and he's 
has a little bit more going on on this record than than previous ones. And, uh, you know, you get the impression that this is Jeff Nichols was in was there in the studio. He's checking his keyboard, making sure it works and somebody records it and they slap a whole bunch of reverb on it and, and make a little you know, instrumental interlude thing out of it. You know, I can't imagine that they put a whole ton of thought into uh, something like this. Yeah, no, um, it, it really sucks the energy out. I mean, Trashed is like, it's the intro to the album and then it hits this lull where Stonehenge is. I don't mind the interludes. I think there, there, there's only two of them. Uh, the second of the two, which we'll get to, I think is really effective. And I would miss it if it weren't there. Stonehenge, I can honestly say, if it were, if it were, if we went from trash to disturbing the priest, I'd be absolutely fine. I, I think it's a stopgap. I think it's one of the problems on side one. I, I think it, it just needs to go. I don't know whose idea it was. It doesn't serve any purpose at all. It doesn't even really segue into disturbing the priest, other than the fact that Stonehenge is kind of mellow. It's sort of a new age kind of a effect um and then disturbing the priest comes roaring in with gillen's laughing the maniacal laughter so i mean i guess it, it does sort of have a dynamic in that regard but i mean you could just as easily go from the ending of trash and just like slam into yeah it would have been a much better you would have had a punch. really cool one-two punch but as yeah. it is stonehenge just sort of like it it just it breaks up the vibe it's <laughs> it just it's there and it's like it's like some sort of an intermission way too premature uh for the album so thumbs down on stonehenge for me although you know I mean, it's like so many years i mean I, if it weren't there i i guess i'd miss it um but you do have a good point it's way too early i mean too early as in the second song on the record it's just yeah. i never really thought of it that way but that is a good point it's too early in the record it should have been somewhere on somewhere on side two or, you know, yeah you know what put it on uh it could have been on side two before born again i think that would have yeah. been pretty cool i never yeah. i've never done that i've never taken it out of sequence and put and put it there but i think it probably would have worked yeah uh, for but, sure uh, you know, all right well uh next then you already mentioned uh disturbing the priest and this is one of the for me one of the standout tracks on the album I love this Iomi riff. We mentioned, I mentioned in the introduction to the show, we did a top 20 Iomi riffs at, on at the uh, Layer of the Alchemist YouTube. And uh, this was on my list. I always thought this was a super heavy riff. Iomi playing those harmonic notes, you know, the boom, 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 the way he, those sort of noises, which is something kind of unique for Iomi. It's a very... Yeah different type of uh, Iomi riff. Here's a good example of where, man, oh man, the snare drum sound on this just kills me. When he does that, the snare has so much reverb on it, that like gated reverb sounds. It's just like a smear. It has no punch on it. It just, oh, it totally takes away from that. But I love Gillen's screams, like you said, those manacle screams. I always love that, the spot in the song where it's just, you just got to listen to the night as yeah. he's going up the stairs. It's like he he has a couple different voices in there. And it said, yeah. this is another example of where if this was remixed properly, you can hear there's like some synthy noises going on in the background there to give it like this sort of weird dungeony bubbling mm. uh, sound going on underneath it. But it's just sort of, 
loses its impact because it's so buried underneath all the other buried stuff in this in this mix but but as a way it stands it's it's still a a favorite uh for me on this record and gill in it and the lyrics in it here now fall right into you know sabbath uh sabbath territory with even though the song is when you when you learn the story of it that there was a uh, church close by to where they were and apparently they they came over during one day to complain about the racket that sabbath was making when they were recording but but as a kid you know hearing lines like the force of the devil is the darkness the priest has to face the force of the night will destroy him but will not disgrace you know these sounded like all right now we're really getting into you know yeah i love the way that i don't know what the line is on the the lyrics in here yeah i think the lyrics are when, when Gillen says the last line of night and day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I love that. I get chills when I hear that. It's like he's so into it. Um, is it my turn? Yeah. Okay. This is a great, great, great song. In fact, going from here to end side one, th- this is a successful one, two, three punch. Um, it is dark. Uh, you could even say it's air quotes, satanic. Uh, There's a lyrical content that that has that um, included. Um, It's sort of, when people would say, you know, I've often referenced the time when I was, you know, in in the car with my friend, we were listening to mob rules and he got freaked out. He, that, you know, if I had had born again in the car, we probably would have hit a tree. <laughs> um, <laughs> because man, disturbing the priest to the end of side one is dark. And I just, again, man, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, no pun intended, but um, if it were just more successful in the mix, we would have had a major epic, dark, dark, brooding album. Uh, as it is, man, I, I love disturbing the priest. Uh, it's a great song. Uh, Gillen is, is, you could tell he, he's all in, his voice sounds incredible. Uh, for somebody who supposedly quit his solo band because he had nodes in his throat, there's no indication like that here. You know, he's just like full on Ian Gillen wailing, uh, which is good. I mean, you know, if you're going to do it, go all in. And, and he does. Um, I love the song. It, it, it's a great, great, heavy, heavy song. For sure. All right, then we got another instrumental break here, The Dark, and I guess we'll just put this here with Zero the Hero. Uh, you're right, I agree, The Dark works much better going into Zero the Hero than the way Stonehenge is on this, uh, especially because Zero the Hero fades in, which is which I think is, is, is cool. Uh, the riff in Zero the Hero is just awesome. It has this sort of mechanical uh, feel to it, this repetitive, robotic, uh, monster-like uh, feel to it. Uh, the lyrics, I, I think, are fun. Ian, the way Ian sings it, too, is is cool, you know, except the fact that just second rate, you know, the way he sort of spits out the lines and everything. And I, I, I love the uh, uh, there's I believe it's the bass 
it's it's uh, geezer's bass with like some kind of effect on it when it goes into that bong, 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 you know, it almost sounds like a like a bell, yeah, 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 okay. yeah, you know? yeah, you're that right. is just yeah. like to me so cool, and and I love the way Iomi's solo comes in, like he has this like a little bit of a feedback noise or something when it comes in, yeah. and he has this really like sounds like he has this wah pedal in a certain position so that so the tone of the guitar on the outro solo has this real sort of bright sound to it and as i mentioned earlier as as the song is fading out we hear bill change his drum pattern to go into sort of this like military type feel and there's just something about this song it's a very hypnotic type thing that riff because it just plays so over and over again and uh but but it's it's a great song for me you know if uh, disturbing the priest definitely a favorite on this record zero the hero my other big favorite on here i've got three songs i'll say four that i really really like on this record storm the priest is one uh zero the hero is my second one and we'll get to the other two here uh, i i yeah i think your two are going to probably be on side two are going to be the same ones that i'm going to pick too but yeah Side one, definitely, it's Disturbing the Priest and it's uh, Zero the Hero. The Dark really works well uh, as an intro or as a segue into Zero the Hero. In fact, I think it's one of the things that really make the song sound cooler. It, it definitely uh, it serves a purpose as opposed to Stonehenge. It's almost like diametrically opposed to Stonehenge, where Stonehenge sort of like kills the vibe. Uh, the dark enhances the vibe so the, the dark it has like these you know demonic voices or something I don't, I don't know what it is i don't know how they've achieved it but going from that into zero the hero and that that churning riff um really dark and heavy and like you you mentioned that that bong that <laughs> that, that heavy yeah. bass it's really really cool um one thing i noticed and it it, it sounds like there's like maybe it's just me or maybe it's something that accidentally sounds like this, but it sounds like something from the, the soundtrack of Frankenstein, like those those things that would like those those uh, electrodes or something like yeah yeah you know yeah like yeah there's like this like sh- sh- just like it sounds yeah. like something they reversed something yeah like recorded something and then they reversed it so it's like and it and it sort of repeats along uh, to give it this sort of re- reverse gate yeah sound effect i can hear that um and in the in the, the song itself has kind of a cinematic quality to it you know it's it's like it's not just a heavy song it's a brooding song it um it, it kind of plays into the theater of the mind where when you listen to it i mean you can you know you you're kind of filling the blanks mentally i mean you're like in some kind of a dark damp castle or something like that the atmosphere that it builds is really palpable um, which is really cool that, that they, they can do that um, within the context of the song. I, it, it almost defies not having your mind go somewhere else while you're listening to this. Um, it, it's just so dark. It's really cool. Um, and it's probably the song I think that's most popular from the album. Yeah. It's um, been covered a bunch of a times. Few times. Cannibal Corpse did a cover of it. It's kind of the song that if there's one song that stands out on this record, it's probably this. And, and 
yeah. people probably remember trashed because of because of the video but zero the hero because it's been covered by various people and trashed for the video yeah Okay, so side two opens up with Digital Bitch, and this is, it's not a terrible song, but, you know, this is, I was thinking of this today, that a song like Digital Bitch, it's a little throwaway, it's, it sounds like something that another rock band, hard rock or metal band could have come up with. And when you're talking about a group like Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath does so many things that other bands can't even touch, whether it's a song like Heaven and Hell, or we're talking on this record, something like Disturbing the Priest or Zero the Hero. You know, these are all things that other bands wish they could write a song as heavy as those two songs. But Digital Bitch to me is just, it's kind of a throwaway. It's kind of stock. The lyrics are... Uh, you know, standard rich girl, snobbish rich girl, uh, daddy makes his money from computers. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's kind of throwaway. It doesn't really, it doesn't really do anything for me. Not terrible, but when you're just coming off of something as monstrous as Zero the Hero, this just kind of feels a little bit too standard for me. There's just nothing, nothing special about it. It's one of the songs that I gravitated to first when I got the album. I like the riff, um, but I've never, I've never listened to it, or at least I've grown more accustomed to listening to it in vinyl format. So there was always the break between Zero to Hero where you flip the record over and then start side two with Digital Bitch. I think that if you were to listen to it on CD, or maybe on one side of a 90 minute cassette tape and you went from zero to hero to digital bitch. I think it would be, I think it would work. I think it's, I think it, where do you go from zero to hero? Do you, you can't get any heavier than that. So you got to kind of go in a different direction. And that's kind of where digital bitch takes things. Um, it's got a cool churning riff with Iomi. Um, it, it seems like it's very Ian Gillen. This probably sounds like Gillen's, real big contribution lyrically um it, the, the lyrical references seem really specific curiously specific um you know it's like what, what the hell is he talking about but i mean it, it it's something that's so so foreign to, to anything that's ever been lyrically introduced to a sabbath song it, it it's definitely um it, it seems to have come with ian gillen and like i said you know he the, the lyrics are pretty cheesy. She wears her leather just to satisfy. She really throws it around. Um, you would never hear that in any other Black Sabbath song. It's just, uh, and then, oh my God, the, the, the text in this is so small. The big fat daddy was a money machine. He made a fortune from computers. 1983, was anybody making a fortune in computers? <laughs> I mean, I don't think in 83, but I know, you know, maybe, you know, you could probably find that guy. Maybe Ian saw the future. <laughs> he, he, he knew the future was coming. People are making a fortune from computers now. And I guess they haven't for the past 30 years. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but back in 1983. Yeah, man. Probably singing about somebody in particular. Maybe it was Steve Wozniak from uh, 
Is that his name? The guy from Apple Computers? Yeah. <laughs> he was one of, the, one of maybe one or two. Steve Jobs, maybe that was the guy. Yeah. The digital bitch guy. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's weird. Um, musically, it's pretty cool. Lyrically, uh, it, 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 I'm kind of alienated by it. But, um, you know, there it is. Kicking, kicking side off, kicking side two off in a, uh, in a pretty forceful and confusing way. <laughs> All right, next is my other third favorite on this record, three of the four, uh, Born Again. I think that this is all about Ian in this one. His vocal performance on this is fantastic. Like you mentioned earlier for a guy who's supposedly getting over some voice damage, sure doesn't sound like it on this one. He sells this one with the screams, uh, just his whole vocal thing, even the, the verses where he's kind of lower in his range i think that, that he has a great emotional delivery on this i've always yeah. liked the it's kind of effect on the guitar intro there which is kind of different for for iomi again you know we're saying this practically on every song but the, the mix doesn't doesn't help help uh that guitar sound come out but uh as it is, I think it's a catchy song. It's it's a little change of pace. It's kind of a dark ballad of sorts, if you will. And I think that Ian just shines uh, all over it for me. It's it's all about Ian Gillen and what a great uh, singer he is. Yeah, I, I think this is another. Song. Yeah, I, I agree. This is my third favorite off of Born Again, and I, and I think it's kind of in a class by itself. It um. For as cheesy and, and sort of silly as Digital Bitch is, it's the exact opposite of Born Again. This sounds really sincere. Um, it, it, it's a tribute to uh, Black Sabbath and their legacy of, of bluesy, heavy, dark, melancholy music. I think it fits in really well with, with, with their legacy. Um, it, 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 it's good. I mean, it's fitting that it's the title track because it, it's a standout. It's probably the best song, arguably, on Born Again. Um, Ian sounds great. His lyrics, they're, they're really um, figurative. They're, they're really colorful, um, um, creative. They don't make a lot of sense, literally. But I don't think that's a bad thing because as you read them, they're so colorful and they're so creative. You it enables the listener to, to draw their own conclusions and, and create their own visual imagery. And, and I like that. And I've always done that when I listen to this song. Um, and, and there are some, some words that, that kind of tapestries all faded. And again, it, it brings me into that, that inside of a castle kind of a vibe. It's yeah. damp, dark, um, you know, murky. Um, but it, it has a, a really cool vibe to it. it, it uh, it's different from any other song on the album. It's, I, I guess you could call it somewhat of a ballad, but it's not really. It's just a bluesy, um, emotional, heartfelt song. And I, I like it a lot. And I'm glad that when you have the namesake song for an album, I mean, there's, there's some obvious places for it. Um, you can put it at the end of side one. Sometimes people will do that. You can put it at the beginning of side two, or you can put it dead last. I like it where it is in sequence. I like that it's the second song on side two. I think it works really well there. And um, 
and I think it's probably the most effective in the context of the album regarding the sequence. Um, yeah, it's perfect placement, and it's a, it's a really good song. It's my third favorite song on Born Again. Yeah, I agree. The placement of it on the album is, is good. Okay, next is Hotline, and this is my... Uh, other least favorite on the record. I like this better than Digital Bitch, probably because of the main riff. I think the main riff is pretty cool. But again, it's one of these like, what is he really singing about? It just doesn't seem like he's really singing about anything in particular. And if he is, it's not very interesting. Uh, and it just seems just kind of stock. It's just okay. It's not a terrible song. But again, I just expect better from, from Black Sabbath. Uh, you just come off of Born Again with Ian Gillen's just amazing vocal performance. And then there's this, it just sounds like a, a rock song that, again, maybe this was Gillen's influence. You mentioned that Digital Bitch could have been something in his solo band. And I agree with that and Hotline is the other one that, that mm -hmm. could be from his solo thing. Cause it just sounds like kind of a standard raw, hard rock type tune. There's not really anything special about it. Kind of catchy. I like the main riff, but as it stands, if I was ranking my least favorite to favorites, this would be digital bitch would be my least favorite. This would be my second least favorite song on this record. Excluding cool. the uh, instrumentals, yeah. the interludes. Yeah, um, I think it's cool. Uh, it, it sounds like a Sabbath song to me. I think it's probably one of the one of the the more direct songs on the album that I think does kind of check box a Sabbath vibe to it. And, you know, the, the lyric it does it could work as a as a Ian Gillen band song, but I don't think it was. Uh, I don't think that's where it came from. I don't think that. Gillen took any anything musically from uh, the Gillen band and brought it over to Sabbath. I don't I don't think he was a musician in that regard. I think he was a singer and lyricist and uh, wrote melodies and stuff. So I think uh, the riff, the, the musical origin <clears throat> was was Tony, and then uh, Ian put his lyrics and his melodies to it. Uh, it's pretty direct. I don't have a problem with it. It's not one of my favorites, but it's not my least favorite it, it's sort of there i think that uh also in sequence i think it's you know with, with the weight and and you know and, and the epic quality that born again has i again like zero to hero i mean where do you go from there likewise where do you go from born again you, you kind of have to take you know a left turn and uh, hotline hotline does that you know and uh it's cool all right, then we're up to the album Closer, uh, Keep It Warm, which for me is my other and last favorite song on the record out of my four. This, this to me is a great uh, deep cut Sabbath song. I've always loved the chorus in it, uh, the way the chorus comes around. You just want to sing along with it. The main riff at the beginning is just killer. Again, this is another... You know, when I think about this Sabbath album, it's, it does sound like Tony Iommi was trying to do some things that were a little bit different. That main riff in Disturbing the Priest, that effect he has on his guitar at the beginning of Born Again. And uh, this one here, you know, this riff is a little different. I think for Tony, uh, I think the lyrics are fun. You know, it's, it's Ian singing 
to his wife, I'm out on the road. I'm thinking about you. Keep it warm till I get home. I always thought it was strange. Like I've looked at some different lyrics uh, and you said the lyrics are, are on the record. You have to see if you can see this. When he says that, keep it warm. And then he rat. says something and I've seen it say rat. 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 I've seen it say yeah. rat, you know. Uh, and I guess that's, I've read that that was his wife's name or, you know, like a abbreviation of his wife's name or uh, a name he had for his wife or something like that. I guess that's, that's what it means. I never, never knew that, never understood it. I had the cassette when I was younger that didn't have the lyrics in it. So I always thought he was saying, keep it warm, rest a place by your side. But it was only recently that I discovered that he's, he's supposed to be saying rat. Yeah. Uh, the line, it's one line, and it says, keep it warm, rat, the place by your side. So it's keep it warm, rat, the place. There's no comma. There, there's, no, there's no punctuation. It's just a straight line. Keep it warm, rat, the place by your side. All right. Well, that makes sense then if that's, you know, his nickname for his wife or some sort of something around. Yeah, I think it was, if it was, I don't know what his wife's name was. I mean, what would be what would be a shortened? How would I know. What would name? Rat? Ratina? <laughs> what, how do you go from... I, I thought I remember reading that it was sort of like a nickname or something that he had. Oh, okay. Life, that it, was, it wasn't something like that. But as it is, it's, it's fun. I also love Iomi's outro solo on this. Yeah. And uh, Iomi yeah. seems okay. to always have okay. these great end of album outro solos we had over and over we had lonely is the word and his solo on this one too is sort of the same way it's got some sort of echo on it to give it a little bit of a distant yeah. feel like he's just sort of out there in the distance standing on a on a mountaintop or something playing yep, this where he is this solo and i just think it's it's really I cool i could see him there I'm looking at him right now Playing that song, yeah, that song is tremendous. Uh, I love it. I love how it, it uh, jumps up in tempo, half uh, double time. It's really cool. But to go back in the beginning of the song, when we did our uh, our video on the uh, our favorite riffs, this I think I think this made my top five, if not one of my top three. I don't remember exactly where it was. I, think I have a list here, still from when we did that video. But um, yeah, I mean, I love that riff. It's so raw. It's just I love how it comes grinding into that. It's just wide open. It's pure Iomi goodness. It's one of my, I'll say it again, like in our ranking, it was, it was high on my list. And it is one of my favorite Tony Iomi riffs. Like, I love it. It's, you know, I think I said at the time, and, and I'll say it again, if there's one reason, if we're, if we're not convincing you to, to like Born Again, um, I can honestly say with, with what we've already talked about, I can honestly say, if there's one reason to buy this album, other than the things that we've already said, you know, other than the other positive remarks we've made, I would say the opening riff to keep it warm is reason enough to buy this album. It is pure Iomi goodness. I, I love that riff. Um, I've always loved it. I, as time has gone on, I think I love it even more. I, I love the way that that churns, churns into the song. It's just, it's gold. And Bill's um, drum part underneath it, he's not just playing like a boom chick, boom chick beat underneath it. He's playing like this sort of unique kind of like counter 
yeah. rhythm to it, you know, and it reminds me of how Bill always says that, you know, he, he, he's more of an orchestral type of drummer and he plays like with Iomi, you know, he yeah. comes up with these drum lines that you can just picture him hearing that riff and he's coming up with this, you know, unique pattern underneath it. If he was just playing a bass, snare, bass, yeah. snare underneath it, hi-hat, you know, it would have, it wouldn't have been the same, but as it is, it's like he's playing sort of, so when the chorus kicks in and then he is playing sort of a more, you know, standard beat, it, it sort of makes the chorus feel like it lifts up and it's just, the chorus has a different feel to it than the, than the main riff. It's like the chorus is very uplifting, the main riff sort of drops down and gets really heavy, which I just think is, is awesome. And that double time section that you mentioned, that also is really cool and really vintage Sabbath, something you could almost picture hearing off of something from the Ozzy, you know, the Ozzy era. Yeah. Yeah. Bill's always said that he's a reactionary drummer. He, he reacts to the music. He, you know, he, um, if he feels inspired by what's going on, it'll, it'll reflect in the way that he plays certain parts and you can, you can tell he's inspired. I, I again, I mean, I, I got to keep coming back to the way that the production is. I, I wish I could hear more of that inspiration because there, there's, there's evidence that it's there, but it's not very audible. Um, and, and, and like similarly with, with heaven and hell, when you said, well, you know, it doesn't really sound like Bill Ward, but at least with that, if you listen closely, you can really hear there is clarity with what Bill Ward is doing through the production on on heaven and hell i don't care how hard you try to hear the drums you're, you're you just can't hear the drums with with any any sort of like uh clarity or definition it's it's virtually impossible um and that's unfortunate because it, it, you can kind of like fill in the blanks a little bit yeah. there's, there's a beginning that you can you can sort of that's somewhat audible and then there's a um a finish there it, it, it you got to fill in the blanks but you can sort of like you can guess what he's doing and it sounds really impressive i i'd, I'd like to hear it with with a little more clarity to to sort of like uh determine if what i'm hearing is is, is what he's doing um he he did say in an interview that you know he was he was on board with this album he recorded it he liked what he was doing didn't matter to him that he couldn't it really wasn't audible in the production. He was satisfied that he knew what he was doing and, and that was enough, which I think is kind of strange. I mean, if you're really proud of what you did, you'd certainly want people to hear it, but, <laughs> but uh, I guess Bill felt differently about it. But um, as far as his performance, he seemed like he was pretty, uh, pretty satisfied with it. And uh, yeah, I, I hope someday we can, we can hear it with more clarity. We'll see. And when that day comes, we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely have some, some thoughts on that. So Sure. All right, there you go. I think we've 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 uh, put it out there. Our feelings on uh, "Born Again," an album that we certainly, you know, we certainly like the songs on this record. It's it's just that it's got the mix is without a question a big stumbling block with this album. So, but uh, you know, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to love on this record, and there's a lot of different. Uh, um, they were trying some different different things here, and I think that some things worked a few things here and there you know maybe didn't weren't quite as successful but but it is a fun record and like you mentioned earlier getting it as a 13 year old I do have a lot of memories I do have memories tied up in this record and, and one interesting little funny uh, story that I'll tell about this album is is that 
whenever I had to shovel uh, the snow at my house when I was growing up as a kid, I always listened to Born Again. And my parents' driveway was just the length that on a average snowstorm, I could do that driveway. When I got to the end of the driveway, I was in keep it warm. And luckily, when I moved to my, uh, bought, bought our first house when I got married, uh, the driveway I had there, I carried that tradition on and <laughs> it, it worked out in that driveway also. And now, unfortunately, I live in, fortunately or unfortunately, I live in Florida now, so I don't get to shovel any snow anymore. So I'm not sure I've got a pretty small driveway. Even if I had had, had to do that now, it wouldn't work out. But it's a funny little memory that I always have of I used to always shovel the snow at night. I'd have my cassette Walkman and I would listen to Born Again. That was my snow shoveling uh, cassette. <laughs> That's that's a cool story. Yeah, I, I have certain out al certain uh, albums that remind me of shoveling snow. Saxon Denim and Leather is one. Uh, Sirith Ungle, uh, King of the Dead is another one. It was like snow shoveling jams. Um, weird how that how that works out. But anyway, regarding uh, putting the cap here on Born Again, yeah, I mean, I I didn't think this is where I was going to go with this, but. Um, because I know I've, I've made references to Born Again in a pretty negative way throughout the previous podcast. So I think that it was almost probably anybody who's following them, maybe a foregone conclusion would have been that I was going to trash it. I think you've been more liberal all along with it. Um, I, Whenever I remarked about any remarks I made about Born Again were usually pretty negative. So it was probably maybe a foregone conclusion I was going to tear it apart but in fairness i you know you really can't because there there is obviously there's all the things that we talked about there's there's a lot of good things about the record um the bad thing about the record is 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 obvious um and i think it's cool but it's also kind of confusing that people have embraced the way it sounds um when you say it's a fun record there's a potential for fun but it's really frustrating for me because of the way that it sounds. And it's always been that way. Even when I was a kid, I, I didn't know anything about production. I, something either sounded good or it didn't. I didn't, it was either, it was black and white for me. It either sounded good or it didn't. I didn't get into any kind of a critical analysis of like, oh, well, you know, the drums don't sound beefy enough, or, you know, you can't hear the ride cymbal or you can't hear the bell on the ride. I, I didn't notice any of that. And I, I wasn't, trying to focus on that. I just want to listen to music and enjoy it. Production on this was so bad that even to a 13 year old, it was alarming. Um, so I can imagine <laughs> the kind of effect it probably had on the people that were involved in making it. Uh, but maybe they were too busy to really be too preoccupied with it, but it would have been something that, man, I would have panicked over. I would have been like, oh my God, we spent all this money on this record and it sounds like this. You know, we stopped the press. We got to get back and do the proper remix. But yeah, in, nobody really seemed to care. Um, critics didn't like it, um, but that's not surprising. I mean, critics, you know, find reasons to not like things a lot. Um, this is handing them a gift here. There's a Black Sabbath review. You don't like Black Sabbath. You know, your critics generally didn't like Black Sabbath. It's almost like handing them a gift. Here's one you can trash. <laughs> it's, it's ready for you. Just trash it. You know, it has an abysmal production. Um, <laughs> so as a fan, why would you... 
why yeah why would you want to help that along at all when especially when you know the band at, at least at one point in their career were pretty sensitive to reviews and reviews generally you know um affect sales but in sabbath's case never really seemed to have an effect sabbath always had a pretty loyal fan base that regardless of whether the reviews are good or bad it didn't matter people were going to support them people were going to buy the records so i guess it didn't really matter and at this point in their career i don't really think they cared too much about it rightfully so um but from the musical standpoint the people involved and the care that went into the performances and the lyrics and the i you know i I find it hard to believe that no one was concerned about the way that it sounded, at least not to try to get in sooner at some point between the time the album was released and now and, and try to get those master tapes and get back in the studio and give it a proper, proper remix or proper mix. Um, but, you know, I guess it, I guess it never really bothered anybody. So kind of confusing to me. And it, it's one of the things, like I said, it's, it's been kind of frustrating because it's very difficult for me to get past it, but Upon closer inspection, I mean, I got to be fair about it. And there's some really good songs and good riffs, and there's a lot of good things about it. So I guess 50 50, you know, production really overshadows a lot of things, but where it redeems itself is in the quality of the songs. So. Yeah, and the album did surprisingly have some success in the UK. It went to number four in the US. Yeah, it it right. did crack the top 40. So a lot of that was probably on the hype of, especially in the UK, of, of Ian Gillen, you know, being Deep Purple's a big band, big in the US, but even bigger uh, overseas in the UK. So, you know, that, that probably helped to drive the sales of it. So I think historically it was it was a pretty important album for Sabbath, too. And I, we're, we're getting into this at the very tail end, but I think it was... You know, they, they came from a situation where they had Ronnie and Vinny and they were two Americans and the band was kind of split in half. You had the Yanks versus the, the Brits. Now you had a completely British band. You had, you know, Bill was back on for the recording. You had Ian. And I think Tony was, was he really embraced that. And I think that the spirit of the album, the spirit in which it was written and recorded was really on a high note. I think they came from a bad situation or things didn't end well at the end of... Um, live evil production but i think uh spirits are running pretty high i think uh i think even ian embraced the situation where he was part of a band he wasn't the leader which i guess became a little overwhelming after a certain point in time so here he was he was sharing responsibilities with three other guys and i think he I think he was comfortable being in that position after a period of time where he was the main guy and he was the boss and maybe that was sort of like bewildering after a while so um yeah i think it was a good time for the band and i think it's an important album in the history of black sabbath i wish you could consider it an era because it almost is so big that you you almost want to but it's just one album you know yeah um, and, and they do say even surrounding all the craziness with this record and their feelings on the mix of it in the album cover uh, the guys in the band always seem to say that they had fun, you know, yeah. they had fun on the tour. Yeah. They had fun making the record. So, so there's that. Yeah. All right. Well, we'd like to thank everybody out there for listening to the podcast. Uh, head on over to Facebook. Uh, we have a page over there into the void of black Sabbath podcast and uh, leave some comments for us and let us know what you guys think of born again. Also check out uh, layer of the alchemist on YouTube and look for our 
Sabbath Sunday uh, series that Darren and I do. We bring in special guests. We talk about all kinds of different Black Sabbath stuff. We're going to try to find some guests to join us for a uh, discussion here on further discussion on the Born Again album. And uh, thanks again to everybody out there. And we will see you uh, next time here. We're moving in chronological order. And next we have Ozzy's Bark at the Moon album. And this is an interesting one. You may think that Darren and I agree on everything, but we're going to see on it. We're going to find out on the next episode. We have a little bit of different opinions on the Bark at the Moon album. So it's going to be a lot of fun uh, discussing and debating that album. So thanks again, everybody out there, and we will see you next time.